Good morning, church. Good morning. I welcome you to our Sunday morning service here at Crossway Baptist Church. And we are glad to have all of you that have found time to come and uh, be with us in the worship of our living God this morning. And also those of you that may be following us uh, on uh, Facebook. I will ask us to turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. And we will read uh, verses 39 and 40. Hebrews chapter 11, reading from verse 39 to 40. The Bible says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that they, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you reign on high, and we thank you that uh, besides you there is no other God. You alone are the true living God, and you we come to worship this morning because you are worthy of our praise. Thank you for the opportunity and the chance to come in your house of worship this day. And thank you for the chance to hear your word preached in our hearing. We pray, our Father, that through your word we may continue to be encouraged as we walk on this earth that is full of challenges and difficulties. Yes, our pilgrimage home to heaven is full of challenges, but we thank you that through your word you provide us with encouragement and strength that we need. And so even this morning, we want to ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might speak to us, that we may indeed know that encouragement from our God. Be with us now, Lord, as we hear your word. May you cause that we might apply what we hear into practice. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we did uh, consider the fact of uh, the privileges that uh, the New Testament saints had and still have. But this was in connection with the, the Hebrew Christians who were contemplating relapsing into Judaism. And the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to show them that uh, that's a wrong step they are taking because if they compare what is happening to them and what the others before them have experienced, it actually doesn't even match. And yet, the Old Testament saints who maintained their faith, who kept their faith, did not even have the kind of light 
that they, the New Testament saints, have. The privileges included having the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom these only saw from afar and looked forward to. Them, they had him, he had come. The privileges also included the gospel itself. When the New Testament was now collected, it's with them, it meant that they now have all the information that was in the Old Testament coupled with the New Testament uh, a gospel. And now they have this fuller revelation of God, which their counterparts, the Old Testament saints, did not have. But he said in the third place that even in terms of the future, these who have gone before them, we will not uh, you know, get the privileges before they come. They had to wait for the New Testament church. And so we saw then that they had so much before them that should have caused them to actually even bypass these men of the Old Testament. But here they are. They want to go back to Judaism. The question is why? And so today, what I want uh, really to do is uh, to answer that question. What could have been that uh, major reason that pulled them, you know, from striving with all the privileges before them? They still were not making progress in their spiritual lives. Their spiritual growth was still, you know, um, unimpressive. So what could it be that was pulling them so much backwards? And from the same points that we considered last week, I want us to see that uh, the major drawback, the major thing that was pulling them was their culture. The Jewish culture. Remember, these were Hebrews. And so previously... They belonged to Judaism because as Hebrews, they were not just Jewish by culture, but Judaism was their religion. So that even when now they came into Christianity, their minds and hearts and roots were still somehow, you know, rooted in Judaism. So much that while they were in Christianity and then they faced these challenges, the first thing that they quickly fell back on was their cultural background. And so that tells us something about the power of our cultural background, where we are coming from, the background and the root from which we are coming from, and how that has a pull, and it has the power actually to cause us to make progress in our Christian walk. And so this morning I want to talk about breaking or tearing down cultural idols because it is these that cause us to fail to grow to maturity. And I want to discuss these uh, cultural uh, elements under three headings. Number one is the area of authority. Number two, the area of norms or standards. And number three, the area of life after death. 
I did mention that culture has a strong power and influence to hinder our Christian progress. It did for the Hebrew Christians. And allow me from the onset then to state the basic principle that guides Christian thinking always. And it is simply this. What does the Bible say? It's very simple. It's very basic. But many of us do not apply this basic principle in life. Does or will this please and honor God? That which I'm doing or about to do? Very basic question. And if we were to put this basic lens or this principle as the lenses through which we should be seeing the world and interpreting our actions and decisions, I can guarantee you that you will be able to overcome many of the things that pull you backwards, even the pull of the power of our culture. It's basically this that changes the way you see the world and interpret it. So what these Hebrew Christians were doing is that they have become Christians, and as they are walking in their Christian life, they remove the lenses or the glasses. And if you try and ask the people who have challenges with uh, their sight or their eyes, and you ask them how important those lenses or glasses are to them in terms of seeing clearly, they will tell you it makes the world of a difference. And it is the same thing that uh, once we drop these lenses of uh, asking what does the Bible say and living by what the Bible says, we will not go any further or far from our colleagues that uh, when we read about them, we think, ah, but how could they? Everything was at their disposal. How did they fail? to be like uh, the Old Testament heroes. And now they are being ashamed here uh, by the authors. He says, look at you and compare yourselves to these who didn't have as much as you did. For you and I, the advantage and privilege continues. We have Christ, and we have the full revelation of God. The gospel is with us. Do these things really have any influence and a strong impact upon our lives? Are these the lenses we use to interpret our world, to understand our world, to influence our actions, our decisions? Or, most often times, we remove them. And the vision is impaired because the only true lens that can give you a clear and a proper understanding of life is Christ. It's the Gospels. It's the Scriptures. Why? Because 
God is like the manufacturer. And therefore, his word is a manual to us. And every time we drop it, we are in trouble. So I want us then to talk about our own culture. Because we have seen how the culture of our Hebrew friends affected their Christian life. And so we see that culture has this subtle way of negatively influencing us and causing us to fail to grow to maturity in faith. And I want us, when discussing this cultural issue, to look at two main cultures for us as Africans that influence us. We have our African traditional culture, but at the same time, we have the modern culture. So we are influenced by these two cultures. By the way, culture is a common thing. It simply means the way we do it here. It means what is common, what is trending, what is popular, and everybody has accepted it as a, you know, a, a normal thing. Okay? And so all human beings have a culture. We talk of European culture, African culture, American culture, and so on and so forth. Um, and the culture is like environment in which our background is then formulated, and it is in that same uh, culture that our worldview is shaped, the way we look at life. It is shaped by that uh, environment that surrounds us, our culture. And so it is then something that uh, we grow up with and we are so familiar with and it so naturally comes to us because that's our root. Now, sadly, all cultures are fallen. You must always remember that. All cultures are fallen. In other words, they are sinful. Why? Because they have been forged by humans who themselves are fallen. So because man has fallen into sin, whatever then he imagines and forges by himself without the help of God cannot be perfect. It may have some... Uh, you know, good things here and there, but by and large, it's distorted. And so there is no culture then which is perfect. And that includes our own African culture as well as the modern culture, both of which influence our lives. And so I want to just uh, show how these cultures, or well, since they are now combined, I'll be calling them just a culture, but I will obviously be talking about the modern and the African traditional religion uh, or culture, and how they have a subtle way of influencing us and pulling us from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, and how that uh, in most cases we replace what the cultural uh, demands tell us with what Christ and his word tells us. And that is where the problem is. So let's begin with the first, uh, uh, the first one. 
and it is basically our culture on authority. Our culture on authority versus the authority of Christ. Now, when you look at these uh, Old Testament saints, what made them to overcome the obstacles they faced and to emerge as heroes in spite of the fact that uh, they didn't even get what they were looking forward to? you discover that it was that they believed in God. For them, God had spoken. He had given this promise. And this God cannot lie. He's the ultimate authority. And so just because God has said it, we must obey. And for them, that was it. There were many voices that were coming as we have been seeing some of which were, you know, persuading them to turn away from their faith and so on, so they can have their freedom, their property, their what. But the Bible tells us that they still steadfastly clung to what God had promised. So to them, God was final. He was the ultimate authority. Now, you and I know that Christ has come, and that's our advantage as New Testament believers. Christ has come into the world. And from all we know, you and I claim to have professed faith. In other words, we, we, we claim that he's not only our Savior, but he's also our Lord. That's what we, we, we do when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. We we confess him as our savior and also our Lord. And so it is then expected that because we have then come to understand that this Jesus who has come is God himself and is supposed then to be Lord of our lives, we are supposed to listen from him. That's how natural it's supposed to be. But does it happen like that? For those who may be saying, but how is Jesus, uh, you know, God? You can read John 1, verse 1 and 2. The Bible is very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's very clear. Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then the Bible is basically saying he has authority to tell us what to do. Because when you are talking of authority, you are thinking of somebody who calls shots in your life, who controls your life, who tells you what you must do and you obey. Who is that one in your life? For these brethren, the Old Testament saints, it was God. For us, it must be Jesus. But the problem is, this Jesus has a competitor. And it is our culture. How do culture or cultures, particularly talking about our African culture and our modern culture, how does 
culture compete with the authority of Christ in our lives? Or how does it contradict the authority of Christ? Let me begin with the modern culture. Modern culture completely and absolutely refuses any absolutes. Whether this is authority or truth, they believe everything is relative. There is nothing that is absolutely authoritative or true. So modern thinking and modern culture, which many young people are born into, it has this understanding that there is basically no authority that is absolute. No truth that is absolute. Everything is relative. And it is relative to what? Number one, it is relative to self. Okay? So it means that sometimes authority could just reside in me. And that's why you hear common statements like, but it is fine with me. And as long as it is okay with me, I don't care who cares. In other words, I'm not recognizing any other authority apart from myself. Apart from that, it's the family. You heard many people saying, the family has decided, so nothing can be done. So nothing then must be above the family. But also, sometimes it might be the world. Remember, it is relative. It has no absolute authority. It is depending on who is involved in it. And so sometimes it may be the world. And you, you must have obviously heard it said, it is in public domain, and everybody does it, or everybody is doing it. In other words, they are saying, since it is a common thing, it's a culture, it's what is trending, therefore, it is right. So the, the authority of what I am doing or what is happening is depending on the, what everybody, the majority, are doing. And the reasoning behind is that, uh, my friend, it obviously, you don't tell me that it can be wrong when so many people, in fact, the world over, are doing this thing. It can't be. There is no way it can be wrong. So in terms of authority, the modern culture tells you it is relative. The scriptures have told us there is absolute authority and it ends with God. Christ, being God, is final authority. What about our own African tradition culture on authority? Well, it depends mainly on two things. Number one, age. Okay? Age is often equated with experience and wisdom. And therefore, the older someone is, the more experienced and the more wisdom they have. So the older, the better. The second is the status. The African traditional culture is set in such a way that it is hierarchical, okay? There, is, there are these levels, 
and the higher on the strata of hierarchy one is, the more authority one has. And so when you look at the African uh, traditional uh, 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 setting, you have the children at the lowest, at the bottom of uh, that ladder, and then you have the parents, and then you have the headmen, and then you have the chiefs, and then you have the medicine men. And from there, you move to those who have reason to master and exploit and interact with the spirit world. And these include the witch doctors and the spiritists. Sometimes even wizards and uh, uh, witches. They have mastered this art where they have penetrated the spirit world. And because they have this mysterious, you know, uh, ability, they are now at the highest you know, ranking level of this, of, of this arrangement. And so they are the ones then who are at the level of higher authority in society, in the community. They are the most respected and they are the most revered and feared because of this ability to interact with the spirit world. Now, you notice then from this that in the African culture, authority is said to belong to those who have experience and wisdom and special status in this society. Now, this experience, wisdom, and special status attained is not necessarily from God. Okay, it's not based on the authority of scripture or of Jesus Christ, but on African traditions, culture, and religion. So they have the wisdom, yes, but what kind of wisdom, what kind of experience? It is not that which is found in the scriptures or taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that which belongs to the traditions culture, and religion of Africans. It's very important because we normally confuse these things that what is said by, you know, the, the hierarchy of our society there is the same as what is in the scriptures and what Christ teaches. And so we easily come with these things. And of course, all of us have got this baggage from our own cultural backgrounds. Because we are not born as Christians. We came into Christianity with this baggage. And in many of us, it is still plays a very critical role, even over and above the faith you have come to embrace. And that's where growth has been static in your life. So it is therefore a different religion from Christianity and its values, you need to understand that it's a religion on its own. To many, that's the blind spot because we don't make that distinction. We just uh, swallow everything. And here, you often hear, especially the traditionalists, those who have grown up in villages, especially Bakulu Bakulu, they say, but does this mean everything about our culture is wrong? Or uh, 
didn't Africans know God and even worshipped him long before the white man brought Christian to Africa? The answer is yes. Not everything about our culture is wrong. But there is so much about our culture that contradicts the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture. And that's where the problem lies. I'm emphasizing this because all of us know the common slogan, Intambi, Intambi. And it is that issue of Intambi, Intambi that make us fail to live to the level that the heroes of faith that we have been talking about here lived up to, which made these Hebrew uh, brethren, you know, shrink because of the pool of their culture. They wanted to get back to Judaism, just as we want to get back to our African traditional region or our modern culture. And so, the God, or that God of the African traditional region, is one that cannot be approached by an individual, but it is one that is mediated by those on the highest level of the hierarchy system. Remember, we talked about uh, those who have penetrated the spiritual um, uh, uh, realm to be at the highest level of the hierarchy system. Even the chiefs go to consult these witch doctors and these spiritists to help them understand what they need to do. So the problem with this form of worship can be deduced from Paul's encounter with pagan worshippers at Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we read this. Now while Paul waited for them, that is Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. We jump to verses 22 and 24 of Acts 17, and we read, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Arepagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom we worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, you'll notice here that the Athenians knew that there was a God. That is very clear. Now, this is so because the knowledge of God is universal. God has revealed himself in nature, but he has also written the law of God on the tablets of all the people. There is no one who is born an atheist. It's a lie. Everyone who comes into this world comes with the knowledge that there is a God. It's only when they imbibe all these funny things that they now begin to reject him. So even the pagans, the Athenians, knew there was a God. And they were even worshipping him. But you notice that Paul says, 
It was idolatry. Why? Is he saying they are worshipping a false god? No, he's saying the mode of approaching this god is wrong. The manner in which they were approaching this god is wrong. And approaching God in a rightful way is very important. Because the true God can only be approached in a particular way. And that's where it becomes very difficult. How are you going to approach a God that you have no relationship with or has not communicated to you? Okay? The only thing you can do then is to improvise or devise a way or a method that you yourself think will please him. Now, the God of the Bible is a God who reviews himself. And if he does not review himself, you cannot know him. And you can only know him to the extent that he has made himself known. Now, these people are worshipping the God that they do not know. They only know he's there, but they don't know him. Meaning there, there is no encounter or that relationship. Where did they learn that this is the way of worshipping him and what we are doing will please him? Oh, my friend, they are offering strange fires. You can't devise a plan of how to approach this God. You can't imagine that if it is good with me, then it is good with God. He's not man. And so, you see then that by rendering false worship, which is what also happens in our African traditional culture, Paul calls that idolatry. So our people are idolaters because they have given God the kind of worship that he has not commanded from them. Who told them this is how they must do it? So yes, we may want to defend that, yes, God has been in Africa with us and so on, but we must accept that we have worshipped him in a wrong way, and that is idolatry. We need to turn away from that and see how he has reviewed himself and how he ought to be approached. But also, I want you to observe, still on the point of authority, I've taken a bit of time, but we'll move on soon. You notice that the people on the highest strata of this hierarchy in authority are witch doctors and spiritists. And these are the people and the minds and brains behind the interpretation of all matters relating to the spiritual world, including the formulating of the means and methods suitable for approaching God. Where did these get this way of approaching God from? These witch doctors and spiritists, where did they get the information from? I'm sure you, you, you will notice that it's not surprising when, for example, somebody has a challenge or a difficulty and decides to consult, as we always do, you know, the older, the wise, and so we always have to go to our grandparents and our uncles, most of whom are not even believers, okay? So we go to them to seek help. And what do they do most of the times? 
they will have identified one of the popular, most respected witch doctor or spiritist around. So when you go to the village to seek help from our people, they take us to this man. And this is the man who then helps us. Where did he get that power from? Certainly not from the God of the Bible. We will get to that later. But I think we have had some help on this matter with Siawan. Most of you know this popular man called Siawan. Eh? He recently came in the open and confessed that uh, the power that he uses is not the power from Jesus. It's the power that was there before Christianity came, the power that our forefathers used even before the dawn of Christianity. In other words, before we received the revelation of God, before Christ came and the gospel came, there was a power at work. And he's saying he has tapped into that power and he uses the name of Jesus with that power and he has built churches and the people flock to those churches. But at least he has been honest enough to say it's not the power of Jesus and it's not the power from the scriptures. But he has given us an idea that there is another power, another authority. And this is the authority we tap into when we consult these uh, witch doctors and spiritists and, you know, many other like uh, people. The second thing I want us to see and also, you know, see how it again robs us of the ability to grow, to mature, to the high levels that God wants us to get to in our Christian work. It's the issue of our culture and the standards or the norms. We have just talked about the authority. What about the standards? We've said, as far as the Bible is concerned, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the authority. When he speaks, we must listen. That's what the Old Testament saints did, and they were commended for their faith. But what about the standards? What agenda guides and shapes your life? Is it the scriptures, or is it the cultural norms, the cultural standards? For us who are believers, we know that the scriptures are here, and they are sufficient. You read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You're looking for anything for life? The scriptures. You're looking for anything for godliness? The scriptures. So as far as God is concerned, he has given us a guide for this life. He has given us a map. The scriptures. 
And the Bible is not saying some areas. It's very categorical. And what the Bible is implying is that in the scriptures, all that you need for life and godliness is either explicitly stated or commanded, or it is implicitly stated. In other words, it's either it is very clear you can go straight to a Bible passage, or you can infer it by looking at the principles that are in the scriptures, and you can still come to a conclusion that this is the mind of God on this matter. So yes, not everything can be there, you know, turn to page this and chapter that, which is the explicit, you know, command. But there's also an implicit command. And the Bible is saying, in that sense, the scriptures are sufficient. But what does our culture say, both the modern and the African traditional culture? I'll apply it to three main areas of uh, the crisis or crucial times of human life. That's childbearing, puberty, and marriage. Do we apply the scriptures in these areas or do we apply cultural norms in these areas? Childbearing and children. The Bible is very categorical. It says in Psalms 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So the Bible does not tie marriage to childbearing. It teaches that marriage is still a successful marriage even without children, since children are a gift from God. Remember, marriage was instituted by God. And therefore, to this marriage, he sometimes gives gifts. Sometimes he may not. But it is still a marriage. But what does uh, our culture say, African culture? It says no children, no marriage. And this is a major recipe for believers consulting and seeking unbiblical sanctions help, like, you know, they, they seek which doctors help, spiritists, now even have the prophets, and the seers like seer one, as we've been saying, who also have tapped into the same power to try and save one's, you know, face and um, a shame, but also to try and keep the marriage. So there is a sense in which for our culture, children are tied to marriage. The Bible says no. It's not correct. So those people who are believers and after maybe staying for a long time without having children then decide, no, we are divorcing. Which agenda are you following? Which norm, which standard are you operating on? Remember the question is, what does the Bible say? That's the basic principle. We need to be thinking biblically and that question is crucial if we are going to overcome the pool of culture on our faith. 
There's so much that goes on in terms of belief about children that contradicts, you know, Bible. At that point, for example, of a, a woman being pregnant, there are so many things that people want to do, you know, to, to protect the pregnancy, so there are some charms that must be, you know, used. Um, when, for example, there is a miscarriage, in the African context, the interpretation is that uh, somebody is stealing my children. And what do you do to thieves when they are stealing from you? Eh? The way you deal with thieves in a physical sense. Now, these are stealing my children in a spiritual sense, so there must be a spiritual way of approach to stop these spiritual thieves. Where do you go? Because you won't find that at, at, at church. You won't find that at the hospital. So you must then go to places where you get help to deal with these spiritual thieves. And already you are trading in another area. You see why Africa is so tied to the world of the spirits? The spirit world is so close to us and so near to us. And so you find then there is this issue of wanting to protect the unborn child and charms must then be used. There's also the issue of protecting the same child who's been born because again, there are these you know, people who can harm the child and there are so many things that are done to protect the child. Sometimes for fear that if my child sucks together with another child who has some medicines, my child will get sick. So how do I protect my child? You also get into the charm world. So there is one who you fear has charms, and it causes you also to become a charmer. But in the process, you know who are involved in now? The children themselves become witches. Because that child there who has that medicine is a threat to this other child who doesn't. And so you have to harm this child by protecting it. So the two children are now wizards. And I'm not talking of things that many people do not do. Even those who are Christians. You know about issues of Ichivele, mothers here. You know these things because most of you, when you are coming in, you know, into marriage, these things were taught you. Some of you are even given these medicines that when you begin to have children, this is what you must do. And you've been holding on to these things as a Christian because you believe this is the agenda for protecting your child, for protecting your pregnancy. Who do you listen to? But that's the power of culture. At the point of naming children, <laughs> there are other issues that happen there. You cannot get a child out of the home without some uh, form of uh, ritual. And it's not done by the biological parents. It must be by people who know these things. So you always import. Naming of children, especially when the child is crying a lot. What is causing the child to cry? Oh, Bambuya, the one who died. 
is wanting to come back. So there is a, a committing code. Who can it be? When they give a name, the child stops crying. Ah, we knew it. Here, yeah. So we have won the battle. So we evoke the spirits of the departed to protect our families, our children, our property. The other part is the puberty stage. Now, puberty stage is God's time for a person to transition from childhood into adulthood. It's just a stage in the way God has planned us humans, from being children, we grow into young people, and then adults. And uh, puberty is one of those crisis times of our lives. It's a great time for believers or believing parents to teach their children what Psalm 139 from verses 13 downwards you know, tells us, how we are wonderfully made, how we are beautifully made. To have the opportunity as a parent to tell this child the plan of God in making man and what man is here for in the world and why we go through these stages. And it is a wonderful time then to explain, you know, that now this stage you have reached, my child, these are the responsibilities for you. And going forward, these are the expectations. It's a time to inculcate, you know, godly values that prepare these young people both boys and girls, into godly young men and young women. So this, instead of the parents taking advantage of this opportunity to inculcate values, godly values and purity values, values of responsibility, hard work, all of which must be based on the fear of God and should characterize, you know, the, the whole issue of what the, the, the Bible and the gospel teaches us. We find that uh, that voice usually is silenced by a bigger agenda or norm, a standard greater than this one. When a child comes, mommy, 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 and the parent looks and realizes, okay, the child has come of age. What do they do? They panic. Don't wait there. Let me call your auntie Z. Your grandmother should now come and talk to you. It's like, this is a matter I cannot handle. This is a matter that is beyond me. I need to bring people to come and deal with this matter. And the people you are saying, aunties and uncles, you know that they have nothing to do with God. They have nothing to do with the Bible. Even when they come to teach your child, it will not be this wisdom. It will not be this knowledge. It will be the knowledge of the traditions and the culture that are void of God's commands. But we have a stronger respect for that voice than 
what the Bible teaches. Even though the Bible is with us, you see, this is what the author of Hebrews was saying. You have advantages. The Bible is with you in your hands. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit with you. Why don't you make use of this? It's because of these bigger voices. So the standard now becomes the continuation of our cultural, the issue of intambi, intambi. You see why this slogan, for you Christians, you need to be very careful how you apply intambi. Muambo ni muambo. Yes, but if only it conforms to the norms and standards of scripture. Because for you now, being born again means, what does God require of me? What does the Bible say? That is what must always guide you. And if it is not clearly taught or implicitly stated in Scripture, have nothing to do with it. That is what it means to then be separated from the world, even if these will be your relatives and your, your parents, on this matter, you must be ready to be hated. That's what Christian says, that it has come to divide the mother and the, the mother and the daughter, to divide the son and the father. It's because of this. But that voice, our blood links, our traditions and our background, they are so strong. We fail. Yeah, but Pastor Muziwa never mind. Yeah, this is the oldest uncle in the family. So even within you, you know this is not supposed to be done. But instead of standing up to honor your Christ, to honor your God, you give in. For you who are involved in helping these young people, the scriptures in Titus for women, Titus chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 says that, uh, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. We need from that point to begin to inculcate. You see, when, when this, this author is, is saying these words that uh, the older women must train the younger women, it's because the younger women have these children who obviously will reach puberty at some point. And it's obviously in this infer, inferring that they are supposed to include in their curriculum these matters. These older women are not worldly older women, remember. These are godly old women in the faith. And their duty is to inculcate the biblical experience and knowledge they have into these women who will then prepare their children as well on the path of becoming godly young women, godly young you know, wives and mothers eventually, godly young men, godly young husbands and fathers eventually. The whole issue from the biblical perspective 
is to build the, 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 the mind of God into these children and to make them grow into godliness and the fear of God. And that cannot happen by bringing in and hiring people who do not have biblical knowledge. It cannot happen. It's you, the church people, who must come up with a syllabus that will prepare our children. You see, there are all these voices. There's modern culture and so on. And they get confused. It's your duty at this stage of puberty to begin these lessons with these children that they become godly young women and men in society. You know, some of these uh, cultural traditions of ours, and even the, the unbelieving people and relatives we invite, when they come to teach our children, do you know that they actually spoil them more? Morally? Some of these uh, traditions actually encourage sexual immorality. They encourage these young people after they have come of age that now they can go out there and try out the prowess of their sexuality. And when you send a young man on that mission, he has become a rapist. If you send a young girl, a young lady on such a mission, she has become a potential prostitute. Is, is that what you want for your child? People who inculcate in the mind of your child such kind of moral values? Wake up, church. This culture is subtle. And we need to identify those idols in this culture and break them and tear them down. Don't be held down by mwambo ni mwambo. Everyone is doing it. You are not everyone. Your mwambo is scripture. You are a child of God. Your authority is Christ. And your norm and standard for life are the scriptures. Full stop. The Bible has assured us there is nothing you lack by holding on only to the scriptures. It is sufficient for life and for godliness. The third is marriage. Let me say a few things on marriage as well. What does the Bible say about marriage and how does culture contradict it? It says in Genesis 2 verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what the Bible is implying is that you know, marriage is God's idea that it should be monogamous, monogamous between a man and a woman that it must involve the elements of living cleaving and becoming of one flesh, all aspects which reveal a life of commitment, responsibility, and accountability to each other. You can see the values that are there in this arrangement. And only death should break the marriage bond. It is also in this context of marriage that uh, sexual relations are to be practiced and enjoyed. And therefore, from the biblical point of view, 
Sex outside of marriage is sin. It's not a mistake or a silly, you know, step. It's it's sin. But what does modern culture say? Well, modern culture says marriage and sex is free between any two consenting adults, whether female or male, and that obviously is promoting polygamy, homosexuality, lesbianism. It says cohabitation is fine because it tries to prove the compatibility of those who are involved. If found incompatible, separation is encouraged. Sex is free for all sexual active persons and not restricted to the marriage institution or marriage bed. So long those involved take precautions against unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases, which can easily be done by the use of contraceptives, and they are available. So if for whatever reason there is a pregnancy that is unwanted, abortion is advisable. It is not murder of a baby or the unborn baby or child, but a destruction of a mass that is simply growing in a woman's womb. That's the understanding of the modern culture. Now, I want you to notice how this reasoning resonates so well and connects with the first one we talked about, the one where they have completely rejected authority, including God. You see, the reason they have rejected the authority there is that they might have this freedom here to do as they please. And that's a modern culture. A lot of parents are finding it hard to really, you know, control these uh, young stars. Because as far as they are concerned, they are free beings. They have human rights. And, and so your voices really don't seem to... You are like disturbing them. They don't want authority. And this culture, the modern culture, friends, it cheapens the sacredness of marriage as an institution and it reduces the purity of sex relations to the level of animal behavior. Animals are the ones who can live like this. No rules. But we are made in the image of God. We are humans, for God's sake. How can we have no morals and values to direct us? You just live as you please. But that's modern culture. And by the way, for you young people, this is the danger of marrying non-believers because this is the ideology. This is the view that drives them. So now imagine marrying such a one and you are a Christian and you are hoping you will be happy in such a marriage. With a man or a woman with such a free mind, you really will be happy? You won't. <laughs> I can assure you, you won't. So ask the question, what does the Bible say? Well, let me quickly move to what our African traditional norms say about marriage. Well, our culture does not necessarily believe 
that marriage is a permanent thing. There is always this idea that it may break at some point. So both spouses should remain loosely bonded to each other, but strongly bonded to their blood family relatives because a marriage can break any time and the spouses will return to their relatives or families. And so what this does is that when the God is saying this must leave, cleave, and become one, African tradition is saying, no, 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 no. This is like just a contract. So don't really be so close there. You need to be close to us as your relatives. And you know the problems that uh, these matters then bring. Now, because people enter marriage with the, this loose mindset on marriage, right from the onset, this explains why many marriages do not gel into a one fresh marriage. You, you, you always wonder, why are these people not bonded in the way the Bible has said a wife and a husband must be? They always live lives that the only thing they share is a bed. Everything else, it's uh, each man for himself. They have different bank accounts. They, 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 you know, decisions are made differently. There's just no gelling. There is no becoming of one because one means one in everything. That's what you say when you are making vows. But that doesn't happen. Why? Because our culture, sadly, somehow at the back of our minds tells us, in this thing that I am in, <laughs> what if it doesn't work? What if we divorce? I need to build my own house somewhere. There are a lot of private arrangements that are done. Money sent private without telling your, your other friends in order to maintain the relationships with our blood relatives. All those come in because somehow, somewhere, there is a pool of our culture. But furthermore, our culture actually discourages bonding, especially men being very dearly loving of their wives because it is considered as a weakness. I'm sure I've heard people saying, ah, now I'm alone every time with your wife. But I'm dear, sir. Hmm? In other words, you shouldn't be so close to your wife. You need to be close to us. Now, the, the problem is that uh, When that happens, the wife begins to feel threatened. And when the wife begins to feel threatened, she needs to protect her marriage. So what does she do? To my love portions, that's where they come in now. And from the little that I've gathered, <laughs> I hear that the stuff used in combining these love portions they come from all kinds of dirty, filthy stuff. Anamudyesha koryo koryo. Sure, I've heard that. Anamudyesha koryo No, go and get some sewer, sewer water. And you mix with... Men have eaten dirty stuff. But it's our culture that has promoted that we not be bonded with our spouses. 
and in their insecurity, they have sought help. And the help has always been, I don't know, Kaya Mayoko. You ask our women folk, they will tell you more about these things. But worse still, our culture gives license to a man to be unfaithful. In our culture, a man can be unfaithful, sleep around, it will be excused. But not the woman. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's adultery. It is sin, whether for a man or for a woman. But it's because we buy more into our culture, people are no longer seeing any difference between those of us who have come in the faith and those who are outside. Because our culture has not been suppressed by the power and authority of Christ and his gospel. It has very little impact upon our lives. Now, what I'm saying, friends, is that this caused parents to rethink the kind of people then they engage in counseling their children, as well as those so-called banafimbusa. Because as I said earlier on the issues of childbearing, we are seeing these marriages where people are hiring specialized women, dramas, eh, to come and teach our child the whole night before the, the day of marriage. And this is all they do, these women. They don't go to any church. They know very little about uh, church matters. But you pay money to bring them to come and teach your child. To give your child values that she will live in her marriage the rest of her life to unbelievers. How can that be? No. We need to bring in that uncle, bring the aunt's auntie and so and they spend so much money. So that culture, muambo ni muambo. Friends, there must be biblical justification in all that we do. Well, let me hurry to the last point. And it is our culture and the afterlife versus the biblical teaching on the afterlife. What shapes your understanding of the afterlife? What happens when people die? What, what is your view? Is it a biblical view or a cultural view? Well, the Bible teaches that uh, God created man in his own image and that when man dies, he continues to live as a spirit or soul in two separate designated places. One is called heaven, the other is called hell. And there is no other place between those two. So there is no purgatory, as some allege. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gives it. So two elements. There is here the dust, which is the body, and there is the spirit. So the body we bury, the spirit goes to God. And God then puts these souls, one in hell or one in heaven, depending on what uh, uh, the faith they had in him whilst here. In other words, there's nothing then that remains. 
No spirit hovers in those graves or even freely in the air. Nothing. That's what the Bible is teaching. And we have this clue in that parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. You know, Lazarus went to the bosom of uh, uh, Abraham. The rich man went to hell. In Luke 16, you can read that from verses 22 to 23. So there are those two designated places. But what does modern culture say? Well, modern culture says science has disproved the existence of God and the teaching of scripture. Therefore, science reigns. And the basic premise of modern science is evolution theory, which espouses that everything is matter, and once it dies, it ceases to exist. That's it. So death is an annihilation of life, and therefore there is no life after death. When you die, you die. That's, that's the end. This is the only life. So if this is the only life, what are the implications? Enjoy, be merry, drink, and get drunk for tomorrow you die, and there will be no more after that. Can such a person with, this, with such kind of view be responsible or care when you know there's really nothing to live for tomorrow? Life is just here and now. So modern culture has neither value nor respect for life. It encourages crime, suicide, and all kinds of immoral behavior and actions including the promotion of abortion. What about the African traditional religion? It believes in life after death, just like Christianity, yes. When people die, they go, they continue to exist under spirits, yes. People who die enter a spiritual status, they are called the living dead. Now listen, that is where problems start. So they are dead, but they are living, of course, as spirits. They have ability to move freely between the spiritual and the physical world. They can be consulted for good or for evil by the witch doctors and the spiritists. This is why there is a lot of fear of the date and the reason of the many rites and rituals and ceremonies for appeasing these spirits. All and every rite demanded to be performed at or after a death is rarely neutral. It has this spiritual connotation in it. Whether done mildly or in a big way, those who demand its performance are influenced by this worldview. Now, this view of the African understanding of the life after death, where spirits of the dead freely move about in the atmosphere with the capability of not only communicating the, the living, but also causing actual harm, has helped in the booming and the mass following of the charismatic movement in Africa. You always hear that the church in Africa is a mile you know, long, but an inch deep. It's because in terms of following, you have all these masses. But in terms of the depth of faith and theology, it fails. And we are part of this assertion because culture helps. You, you, you've seen that many of these churches survive on deliverances, isn't it? 
Almost every Friday, we are going for deliverance. We are going for deliverance. Mbambuya, Simumvela, Bwino, deliverance. We are always going for deliverance. It's this understanding. It's a cultural understanding of the spirit world. They believe spirits are everywhere. And there must be somebody to help out. But what does the Bible say about the dead? Ecclesiastes 9 Verses 5 to 6 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Can it be more clearer than that? So when you wake up, some of you young people, when you are sent, go into the room and bring this. No, there could be spirits there. Spirits from where? The Bible is saying these people who are dead, their memory is forgotten. Their love for those who, who, who are widows or widowers. You don't begin to think that, no, this man is going to come back again. Their love is gone. If they hated you or you, you had a quarrel, the Bible says their hate and their jealousy have since vanished. They can't come back to deal with the living. You see the contradiction between our culture and the teaching of scripture? And yet most of us will still not hear what the Bible is saying. We would rather listen to this and live by this in fear and even extend it through our own children by inculcating these same values as African traditions because muambo ni muambo. What a shame for you who are believers. So the question is, what are those spiritual encounters where people sometimes see these real, you know, uh, real things. Um, they hear voices. Sometimes they even, you know, the dead come into their dreams and tell them, and what they tell them, you know, come to pass. Are they real or are they fake? Well, my answer is they are real. The voices are real. They may even see these visions. So what are they? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. Verse 7. Starting to read from verse 7 to 12. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angel was fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angel was fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation of the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath 
because he knows that his time is short. There is some explanation of why people hear voices. Satan has been thrown to earth with his angels, and we call those fallen angels demons. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 adds another important uh, element about Satan and his demons. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Now listen. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Satan masquerades. He actually changes to look like an angel of light when he is a fallen creature. So what do people see then? That's the question we are answering. They see demons. Where do these people get this power from? We are talking about the prophets and the seers who are doing great miracles and people can see them. And they ask, now you are saying you can see the, the power is there and they are demonstrating. Where are they getting their power from? Here is the answer. From Satan and the demons. Again, seer one has been helpful to help us to see what this really is. It's not the power from Christ or that which we read about in the scriptures or in, in, in the gospels. It is from this other world, ruled by Satan and the demons. Now, friend, that must already tell you that we are at a serious war here. You, you noticed in the, in the book of Revelation, the latter part in verse 12 says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You think he will spare you? If he can manage to really hold you, to believe these things and to hold so you know, strongly to these things, he'll be the happiest. He doesn't want to be the only one to go to hell. His time is short, he knows that, but he doesn't want to go alone. And so he uses this so-called to contradict the teaching of scripture because as long as we do not offer God the right worship, the kind of you know, worship he has commanded and demanded, we don't expect to find favor in the sight of God. We cannot grow to please him and mature in Christians who are godly. These things must be broken. These things must be torn down. In conclusion, culture is a blind spot to our Christian growth. From all these things I've said, I'm sure you can see, and there are many more things 
that I've left out. We need to identify and break all the gray areas of our culture that work against the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and the guidance of the scriptures. We must resolve to have Christ as our authority, as our Lord, and to be guided only by what he has commanded in his word. It doesn't matter who else speaks. If what he says contradicts scripture, with respect, refuse to bow. That's what Christianity demands of you. If Jesus is truly Savior and Lord of your life, I know this is going to be easy for you to do. Because the Spirit of God, if even now you just see that I am weak in that area, Lord, forgive me, I repent. I want to take a more robust, a more resolved, you know, stance on culture. I know I have been very relaxed. I've allowed this to happen in my own life. And I've also passed it on to many others. But Lord, I did it ignorantly. Forgive me. God will forgive you. But then you need to double up. So that you help our culture, our people. You help our children. Not to fall into the trap of the enemy. Where he uses so strongly this culture to contradict the life that the scriptures demand of us. Friend, remember the Hebrew Christians had privileges that because of culture they failed to make spiritual progress. We have that same privilege. The question is, are we going to take advantage of it and make progress or not? May God help you, help me, that we might tear down, break these idols of our culture in our lives. Amen.